Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and I'm thrilled to share a conversation with the author and activist Naomi Klein. Firstly, if you like this podcast, I think you'd really enjoy hanging out with me at the Creative Confidence Clinic. This is a new space where I'm talking about writing and reading. Every week I share an essay. This week's is all about the talent trap and how worrying about our talent can make our ego really mean to us, and how curiosity kills the cat of constant self-doubt. There are also book recommendations, conversations, and there's a real sense of community. Team CCC is a lovely little gang. There's also an option to sign up for an annual subscription where you get lots of bonuses, including a monthly masterclass with an industry expert. The amazing Lucy Vine is coming next Sunday. If you've got questions about getting an agent, getting published and sustaining a creative career, you don't want to miss this one. You also get discounts on my writing courses. If you're struggling with social media at the moment, and I really am, the Creative Confidence Clinic is the place where we can all hang out together again. Go to creativeconfidenceclinic.substack.com for more information. Now for Naomi. She's a journalist, author, filmmaker and activist. Her seminal book, No Logo, rocked the world. She writes generous, thoughtful, clear-eyed books about how we can be better humans and how we can learn more about the things that frighten us the most. Her new book, Doppelganger, arose from the fact that she is frequently confused with the academic Naomi Wolf, a confusion that was becoming a professional problem. And it's an exploration of the depersonalisation that we're all going through at the moment and the fear of the double. We talked about the pros and cons of completely unsupervised childhood reading, Philip Roth, Sweet Valley High, and why it's important to be an eternal student. Um, so it's interesting, actually, because this just came up. Where I live in Margate, we have a local literary festival, which has just had its biggest ever year. And we had the writer Deborah Levy coming. And I don't know if you're familiar, but in her latest novel, August Blue, she writes about the doppelganger and the double. And someone in the audience asked a question and said, have you read Naomi Klein's new book? And have you thought about sort of the concept of doubles as something, I suppose, metaphysical? What did she say? Deborah Levy was really curious and excited to read your Mm. book. And I think she was very curious about, I suppose, the 
the practical and the spiritual elements of the doppelganger. Yeah, no, I lo- I loved her book. It came out after my book was already finished. There were some things that came out while the book was in galleys, and I was able to kind of weave them in, um, like the the remake of Dead Ringers, for instance, uh, starring Rachel Weisz. So I was like, oh, I, I managed to get that in. I had to make a cut in order to get it into the pages. Um, but 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 I read August Blue, uh, yeah, when the book was already f- completely finished, but um, really appreciated it. Just so haunting and spare and, and beautifully captures the uncanniness of the doppelganger experience it seems so timely and I think that's such an interesting thing that happens and I think we talk about it happening in science and maybe less so in art and I think this is a combination of the two of ideas happening and sort of being held by different people simultaneously yeah it's funny because whenever whenever one is working on a um you know a a project that requires a lot of focus and really captures one's mind for a few years. It's hard not to see it everywhere. And you don't know, is it just in your head because your your eyes are attuned to it now? So you're you're picking it up, or is it really, <laughs> you know, are are we really experiencing this this multiplication of cells? Um and because the do- the doppelganger is this the figure of the doppelganger recurs in the history of, of of literature and and dating and back to ancient mythology, so it is it, it is a continual presence, but it is also true that it seems to surge during particular historical moments as a way to make sense of or or look at something that's very hard to look at directly. So you're able to look at an angle, you're able to look at a kind of, at a reflection, right? That was the theory um, of. Well, the first theoretical work about about doppelgangers was by Otto Rank, um, the uh, student of Freud's. Uh, he wrote um, this, you know, much cited book length essay, um, "The Double," the doppelganger, um, and then that became one of the sources for Freud's essay, "The Uncanny," which deals with doppelgangers. But Otto Rank, um, who later broke with Freud wrote that essay, and it was a piece of cultural analysis. He was trying to make sense of why the figure of the double was recurring in um, in books and in early films like Student of Prague. And he, um, and he writes this essay in the very first year of the First World War. So, you know, Europe is, is falling apart. And his translator speculated, well, maybe this is because the world is falling apart, that there is this interest in doubles. So maybe we are in one of those moments again, where we can't look at it directly. So we look at a, a reflection we get we we look at the at a slight angle the the double. I wanted to ask about your um, you as a young reader and as a teenage reader. Um, mm-hmm. I loved an interview you did with Kirsty Young. I think a couple of interviews because I think you were on Desert Island Discs with her. I loved hearing you talking about your your teenage rebellion in a home where I don't know if you call it like a house of activists, but where you know wanting to explore all the shiny parts of the capitalist eighties in a home when that was. You know, not encouraged, and what you know, everyone around you believed in was very much the opposite of that. And did any of that rebellion extend to your teenage reading at all? Um, interesting. Well, probably, probably in like this reading the Sweet Valley High books and real garbage. Um, but no, I, I back was, to doubles. Uh, <laughs> yes, 
back to Davos. Um, I think I was just very fortunate, honestly, that my parents had a huge library. Our basement in our house in Montreal was just lined in books. Um, and I would spend a lot of time down there just pulling books off the shelf that were very inappropriate for me to read at my young age. Um, and I was very unsupervised as a kid. Both my parents work, were really workaholics. And so I, they, nobody was paying attention to what I was reading down in the basement. And I, and that's, you know, they, all of their, Political books were down there. My mom's sort of feminist collection, civil rights collection. Um, so I was I was reading um, and anti-war books too. Um, I think one of the more inappropriate books that I read as a kid. Well, there was Philip. There was always Philip Roth. Just to back up a bit, my, you know, my parents are both Americans. They both um, they both went to Stanford um, for graduate school. My mom was studying film, and my father was studying medicine. And they kind of eloped. My mom was pregnant. My dad was drafted um, to go to Vietnam. And they moved to Canada and had my brother and then later me. Yeah, there were a lot of anti-war books. A lot of, they were very much um, youth of the 60s. So there was Baldwin and Reading Fire Next Time. um, And all the Philip Roth books. So my father... My mom's from Philadelphia. My father is from Newark, New Jersey, as was Philip Roth. So he went to the same high school as Philip Roth, which was one of our family's claims to fame, like this adjacency to this famous writer. At um, the same time? Uh, Roth was two years ahead of my father. So week a week high, it was the name of the of the high school in, New- in Newark. Um, I don't think my father ever met Philip Roth, but there was this sort of like overclaiming of like, he was practically in our family, even though there was no <laughs> connection whatsoever. <laughs> but my grandmother loved to, to brag about about Roth. And um, and so, so reading like Portnoy's Complaint, Goodbye Columbus, like all the Roth books, Professor of Desire, that was like, that was really inappropriate. Nobody knew that I was reading that when I was 10 or whatever. But I think that my most illicit activity down there was read. They, I remember this very vividly. They had, you know, part of them being hippies was like they were trying to raise me differently. Um, and I came across this book called Parent Effectiveness Training, which uh, PET, which was a very trendy child rearing manual of the of the sixties, where. It, it was this thing where you were supposed to not tell the child, make the child believe that everything was their idea. So what you do is you repeat back everything that they say in a slightly changed, um, you know, formulation. So, it, and, and it was filled with these mock dialogues, like child, parent, child, parent. So what, so I studied parent effectiveness training and then would just turn the tables on my parents and do the parent part to them when they were. So like, if I said like, I don't want, I can't go to school today. And then in the, in the dialogue, the parent would say, I hear you saying that you can't go to school today. And then I would say, I hear you saying that you can't go to school today. And it would just be this infinite loop of us doing parent effectiveness training on each other. Um, so yeah, so there were lots of dirty books down there, including Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, which I remember being quite like realized, it really disturbed me how gory, um, how gory this it was. And also just there were lots of um, scenes of 
uh, yeah, sexual, casual, casual sexual assault and so on. That was one book where my mom was like, you have to stop reading that. It's really getting under your skin because they did catch me reading it um, because it was putting me in a really bad mood. Um, But yeah, parent effectiveness training was was probably my greatest rebellion. I don't remember exactly how old I was, probably eight. Brilliant. And you hacked the system. I hacked it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting, I think, about Catch-22 and... You know, when you're a very smart, able child who is really, really perceptive. It's complicated, I think, isn't it, with books? Because I love that they, I think, are the one thing where... I think it's different. Reading an inappropriate book is somehow different from seeing an inappropriate movie. In a way that you can sort of frame what you're reading in your own experience a little better. There's a way to kind of make room for it and soften it. But... Even so, I think it's so interesting how we can read things too early and be completely out, out of our depth. And it's not just sort of, it's not a, a case of misunderstanding. It's a case of being quite frightened. Like, I was far too young when I read American Psycho. And at first I was like, yeah. this is really cool. This guy's in New York and I've never read anything like this. And I love like the short sentences and the sort of the brutality of it. And it felt really edgy and really daring. How old were you? I think I would have been 12 or 13. Yeah, that's not good. I'm sorry to hear that. I then, next to it on the shelf was um, Tales of the City by Almstead Mopan, which more than made up for the, the Brett Easton And I've still gone back and read Brett Easton Ellis and sort of, I don't know how I feel about him, but I'm always curious about those books. And I think I had a bit of a cool girl reader problem mm, same yeah no mm-hmm. lots of women who feel a bit this way about philip roth as well with like oh this is how the mm-hmm. world works this is the woman i'm supposed to be to be sophisticated and um john updike as well i don't think the way he wrote about marriages and i still love those books but i'm not sure i was adult enough to understand that he was kind of being critical and there was an element of exaggeration and parody mm-hmm. yeah and it is striking that so many of these sort of illicit readings are reading male fantasies of what women are supposed to be at this key you know at this Mm. at this stage when you know when when one's own sexuality is developing I mean that I think that's the key right that that it's like the things that enter your brain at the moment that you're even aware of your beginning to be aware of yourself as a as a sexual being it's like parent effectiveness training isn't it we are just I think searching for manuals (laughs) yeah yeah no regrets you know but maybe it would have been nice to have more 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 women (laughs) <laughs> in the lexicon for, for me anyway. Mm. I'd love to hear more about James Baldwin because I know you've mentioned his books in other interviews and I think that he has got to be a wonderful, radical influence to find on your bookshelves at a formative age. This sort of incredibly elegant, bold, mm-hmm. queer voice. I, th- I don't think I've ever read no. anyone like him. And I think that he, that he's a great person to discover in, as a younger reader. Discover, discover and rediscover. You know, it's interesting. I was talking about James Baldwin with a friend where there are some... <laughs> I mean, it's certainly Fire Next Time. And, you know, it, it, I always loved finding my, my mom's, you know, like first editions, you know, like the 1963 edition. Um, yeah, you know, she just had got it when it was first out it wasn't like she was a collector or anything um oh, wow. and and you know seeing her name written in it um and 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 I I do think that that book had there's something about the kind of distilled rage of fire next time 
that was something to aspire to. And, and particularly when I was writing The Shock Doctrine, um, that, that, you know, I sometimes say I wrote that book with a clenched fist, um, holding the pen in it with a clenched fist, because I do write longhand um, in first draft. But And not all my books are written with a clenched fist, um, but that one mostly was. And it is helpful to return to a voice that that was a, a channeler, really, um, of collective rage and, and desire for liberation. And, ne- you know, I think didn't, never lost his moral compass. Um, so returning to him again and again, and, and there's a really wonderful political biography of him by Eddie Glaude that came out a couple of years ago called Be- To Begin, Begin Again. Um, that is really wonderful as well. Um, but what I was saying, I was talking to a friend about Baldwin, it's like, I realize I'm slightly contradicting myself, but there are some writers who, when I read, they help me want to write, you know? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, they, they sort of get, get the juices flowing. And it's like, yeah, okay. But then there are some writers that are so good <laughs> that they make me feel like everything's been said. Why am I even trying? And Baldwin is one of those writers sometimes. When I would read him while I was, while I was writing Doppelganger, I just would feel like he's written everything. He said it all, particularly about memory. Um, but, you know, then it's just useful to quote him. <laughs> and I do that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious about how and when writers read, because I think you're so right that there are some writers where I think when they it feels like they're being very inclusive and very generous and there's they feel quite collaborative. Like I think Zadie Smith mm-hmm. writes essays this way. And I am, of course, I'm nowhere near as smart as that woman or even, you know, a, a thousandth as smart. But, you know, in the, the happy moments of every reading, she makes me feel like she's extending her hand and like, like we might be. But yet that sense of fear sort of when an argument is so beautifully constructed and yeah, you do feel that there's sort of, you know, what, what can possibly be, be added or changed. But as you say, fabulous to quote. Yeah. And I think the part of it that feels slightly discouraging is when is when you're reading truly prophetic voices like Baldwin's and you realize that we didn't listen, <laughs> you know, that the arguments have been mm. made, you know, for, for so long. And then it's just the balancing act because writing is an act of faith. Um in the power of language, in the power of words, right? And so when you read someone who is saying what needs to be said now in 1963, and, you know, um, despite their the force of their words was not listened to, and the world went in the exact direction that they were warning against, it, one can feel speechless, right? And one can feel, and yeah. by which I mean one can lose faith in the power of speech and the power of words and the power of language. And that's always, that's always the wrestle for me. Um, all of my books are an attempt to find my way out of a feeling of speechlessness. And this, this most recent one more than any other, because I've felt so disoriented by what was happening during the pandemic. That sense of powerlessness, I think you write about it with such curiosity as well. And I imagine it for, for anyone to have that case of mistaken identity would be, was it you or was it, it might have been a review I read, sort of this idea that it's a kind of form of vertigo. Um, but I think especially for a writer where all of your work is around 
controlling how you are expressed and expressing yourself in a very deliberate and measured way. Yeah, I think um, I think there's a reason why so many writers have have been drawn to this idea of a doubled self. Um, Roth again, you know, in a way, every one of his novels is a doppelganger novel. Um, you know, there's a, there's the there's the Philip Roth character, right? Whether it whether it's Portnoy or Nathan, or later, you know, he would just write his, his character. His I think Professor of Desire was was a Professor of Desire. Um, I'm a little confused. I don't think it was. Which one? He, like he, like his main characters became, would start to become more and more obviously him. Um, in part because his lifelong struggle was that people assumed his characters were him. So he finally seemed to just be playing with the public and go, "It's me," you know. And he'd call his characters Philip. Um, and then with Operation Shylock, actually called his main character Philip Roth, who had a doppelganger, Philip Roth. Um, but, you know, Graham Greene wrote about having a doppelganger um, and, you know, a real life doppelganger uh, who went around pretending to be Graham Greene and he even got himself arrested for fraud. <laughs> uh, but I think that, like, I, I think part of the reason is there is a lot of ego in writing and writers do control, are, like, are, are, are devoted to, to or a lot of writers are, are are pretty devoted to their name. And so then the idea that there could be another you out there in the world who the rest of the world thinks is you is a is is is, is a profound challenge to your 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 project. Um, you know, I say at the end of the book, I feel thankful for the experience of this kind of mass confusion because I think I care too much. I think I cared too much about sort of polishing the self. I think we all do. I think we live in a culture that, um, you know, has convinced us, you know, with good reason that optimizing ourselves, branding ourselves, projecting a perfected version of ourselves into the world is our best hope of having any kind of safety or security in th- this very precarious, brutal economy. And I don't think it's a good trend. <laughs> you know, I think that, that that focus on the self keeps us from building the kind of collective power that might have a chance of building a better world, of changing things. So I feel grateful to my doppelganger in a weird way. I feel grateful to the confusion because what it taught me is you can you can polish yourself up as much as you want, but lots of people, including you, Daisy, like you know, are going to think that you're somebody who you really don't want to be. And that is a sort of a message of get over it, you know, just get over yourself. Um, you can't control this. You can't control other people's brains. You can't contra- control how you're perceived in the world. That doesn't mean that you don't care about your work. That doesn't mean that you give up on rigor. And you know, But it does mean that you sort of take yourself less seriously and focus more on that collective work, on that movement work. Um, so I, you know, I've, I've decided to embrace this as a lesson in unselfing, as Iris Murdoch says. <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, what you were saying about Baldwin and his prophecies, which we failed to listen to. And again, you know, this bizarre post-Warhol era where we're all broadcasting and we're all constantly thinking about ourselves and trying to curate and control perception and like you know anyone who wants to can do that and I was thinking okay you know you did 
warn us about this very, very explicitly and very thoroughly in No Logo, and we we failed to listen. Yeah, but I think it's useful. Like, who is we in that in that sentence? You know, I I don't believe that that most of us chose to create the conditions in which it would actually seem to be a rational choice to brand oneself, um, to to think of oneself as a commodity, as a product, <laughs> um, as opposed to as a person. I think that, th- and that's why I write about systems as opposed to um, mm. this idea that, you know, we are, ch- we, we are all actively choosing this because out of an array of possible choices, because, you know, I think we're pushed into it by the logics of a system that have told us that we, sh- we can't expect a job, we can't expect a pension, that our life is just going to be a series of gigs. Um, so of course, people reach for this as you know, they, uh, uh, you know, they look around the culture and they see the people who are successful and they tend to be people who have mastered the art of, of self-branding. But I want to turn the focus away from the individuals who make that choice and towards the system that is pushing so many of us into the conclusion that this is the only way that we can have any kind of security for ourselves and our families, um, because I think we should have better choices. Uh, you know, and doppelgangers are also useful in thinking about about mm. about the roads not taken. You know, that's what Freud said about about why we're so. One of the reasons we're drawn to the figure of the doppelganger is that we all know that the life we have now is only one of possible of many possible lives we could have had. Um, if the if the circumstances were different, if the choices we made were different, if the choices other people made were different, um, that's the sort of I think the lure of the multiverse story, right? Like, uh, yeah. and there's more and more attraction to that, and we're seeing more and more of it in the culture. So I think we can take other roads, but not if we're thinking about it just as individuals. It's only as collectives that we mm. could get to another set of choices, um, and that's that's where I think we need to un- that we, where we need to embrace the project of unselfing, not as a sort of individualistic, sort of Buddhist exercise of reaching you know uh, enlightenment, but but as a collective process of reaching towards one another and and building building some kind of collective power that is the only thing that's going to get us better choices than the individual brand itself. But yeah, I, I did write about this in No Loco. I could never have imagined um, uh, how far <laughs> it would go. But you know, I was thinking about that book ahead of this conversation and what books influenced me and to write it, you know, to write in that way. And I remembered this book that I read when I was in university, um, when I was a student journalist, um, which was a collection of columns by my favorite um, Village Voice columnist, Lisa Jones, who, who she's co-written some, some uh, books with, uh, with Spike Lee, but she had a column um, in the Village Voice. Like I, I, you know, I was a student journalist in the 90s and we all loved, like we were all obsessed with the Village Voice. That was our, that was, that was, that was our career goal, like to get a job at the Village Voice. Um, and you know, we, we, my student newspaper had a subscription and we would, we were all just so excited when it came in. And I loved, um, Lisa Jones had, had this column called skin trade where she wrote about race and gender in a, in this very kind of pop culture friendly way that felt really important to me. Um, and she, and, and this was this, her columns were collected into an anthology called bulletproof diva. Um, I think it was tales of sex, race, and hair. And, I, one of the first lines was, style is political, of course. 
And that was, that was, <laughs> that's <laughs> really good. good. Right. And, and anyway, that like w- the way I wrote no logo, which was like inside the culture of being drawn to the shiny things, but, uh, but still reserving the right to deconstruct them. I feel like I owe a lot to her. I've not heard of that book, but I'm going to try and track down a copy because it sounds incredible. It makes me think of that. Uh, I really love, um, I think it's called Crazy Salad and Scribble Scribble and Nora mm. Ephron's Esquire anthology. And I think I just, I just remember being so thrilled by the, the breadth of her remit, mm. I suppose. And I don't think those are necessarily the pieces that she's remembered mm-hmm. for, but that she gets, she sort of does manage to watch and observe and it is that I suppose the wallflower at the orgy thing where she's sort of she's not putting herself on the page but she is in her her observations and in that that sense of the voice and the eye I think is so powerful and I think as well that I don't know how you feel about this for ambitious women um and I think I heard you say it in an interview thinking about this idea of being a sort of a glamorous foreign correspondent that it's writing is what means we can travel and I think in the the books I read there are lots of you know more novels and things but at a time you know when women being sort of in the workplace and participating in capitalism and having autonomy and money is so Mm -hmm. new writing seemed to be one of the very few ways to do it writing and sex yeah you know I was another book that I was that I remembered from the basement for my mom's collection um, was or uh, Ariana Falacci's interviews with history. Um, this huge, it was a big, thick book, um, and she was a, I guess, kind of foreign correspondent, right? I mean, she was interviewing Arafat. She was interviewing all of these historical figures. I mean, I'm not. I was reading a little bit about. Falashi's later politics, which were like virulently anti-Islam, so don't take this as a as a as a, a full-throated endorsement of her politics. But as a young, as a teen, this idea of this glamorous Italian sort of war correspondent, but like going into these kind of conflict zones, getting inter- interviews with history, you know. And the book was just transcripts of her interviews that she did for I forget which Italian magazine she worked for, um, but she was in there. And that, that made an impression on me. Um, even just the title, Interviews with History. Um, but yeah, I, that was another one of my inappropriate readings as a teen. <laughs> oh, that sounds yeah. thrilling. And I think there's a certain amount of fearlessness oh, as yeah. well. You know, seeing this person putting themselves in really challenging situations. And I didn't, you know, I, I, like I'm a nonfiction writer and it was nonfiction that, um, that captured my imagination as a kid. Um, poetry as well, but... But nonfiction, um, there was another another journalist, completely different category. But I was always looking for people who who were doing this political work, but having fun doing it. Because the thing that I that troubled me about my parents' politics was that it felt dour and scolding. I hope my mom doesn't hear this. Um, <laughs> but I wanted, you know, I was looking for a feminism, looking for a left that was that held the contradictions of the attractions to, yeah, yeah, that wasn't on the outside shaking its finger saying this is bad, because I felt really judged by that. And, and you know, that's what somebody like Lisa Jones, um, you know, was to me. And 
the other person who I just loved and who and who unlocked something in me and wanting to be a certain kind of political writer was Molly Ivins, who is from te- was from Texas, and she would just write about the absurdity of Texas politics, and she was like an early capture of the extreme stupidity of George W. Bush, because she was a Texan. Um, And so she was writing about him when he was governor, she would just call him W. And she just captured just the just the inanity of Texan politics in this very, very funny way. Um, And I would just love reading her columns, which would be, you know, were collected into various anthologies. So yeah, um, that shorter form writing had a big influence on me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back with Naomi soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Nina Stibby's new book, Went to London, Took the Dog. It's a diary of Nina's sabbatical in literary London. She becomes Deborah Mogok's lodger, replacing Savnam Sangera. I just picked up the book to look for one of my favourite funny bits and immediately got blissfully lost because every line is funny. Buy it for someone with great taste for Christmas. Secretly read it first, then drop it in the bath and buy another copy. I love it. You'll love it. In the spirit of full disclosure, I should admit that producer Dale and I are on page 20. Went to London, took the dog, is published by Picador and out now. Now back to Naomi. Just looking up a book which I've just read and I loved it so much. It's the memoir of a gossip columnist called Susan, I think you pronounce the name, um, Mulcahy, Mulcahy, M-U-L-C-A-H-Y. Because my lips are sealed. Um, oh, is that what it's called? Yeah, that's a good title. <laughs> yes. Uh, so she's uh, she ends up editing page six um, in the New York Post. But she's there... Again, I think it's late 70s, early 80s. And it's when Rupert Murdoch is just in there sort of building his empire. And she said the whole building is just full of very like sweary Australians. But also it's the beginning of Donald Trump as the ultimate self-promoter, sort of begging to be in the column. And she's, I loved it so much because she sort of says, you know, everyone thinks what I do is so frothy and I'm not going to 
contradict them. Of course it is. Gossip is supposed to be fun. This is where people turn when they want to have fun. But at the same time, the information that was kind of leaking through, I think she had the advantage of often being dismissed as a woman and as a woman who edited like the fun page which she had lots of power and was sort of privy to lots of information but also was I think able to start sort of putting the pieces together and seeing what these um what these monstrous men might become yeah exactly no I think there is definitely something about knowing them when they were really young and before they were polished and before they became these really powerful figures. Um, yeah, Ivan's definitely had that. I mean, the, the other thing that I looked for as a young writer was just like a sense of the, you know, the ability to combine a political project with some kind of innovation and in form. Um, so, so, you know, even though the shock doctrine is a, you know, more conventional nonfiction book, it has this sort of, the the metaphor of shock runs through it, right? Um, whether economic or bodily shocks. And I think I, like, uh, one of the big influences for that was was reading Eduardo Galeano, um, in particular, Open Veins of Latin America, um, which is, it's a, it's very, you know, innovatively told history, um, and these the sort of little vignettes. Um, and, it feel you know he 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 brought the energy of the, of of a true storyteller to historical work, and it's this combination. You know, it feels like it it they feel like parables really. Um, and he in the introduction, I think to that book, he he talks about how he never respected the border guards that police the boundaries between the genres, which I, which, which is, I, which is something that's really stayed with me. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, an, another kind of way into it. So it's not, I mean, to, I guess what I'm saying is to me, it's not always about being funny, although being funny sometimes is what's appropriate or having a strong sense of the absurd. Um, but just trying to be writerly, <laughs> Uh, um, like not forgetting that this is not just medicine, this is reading, mm. this is text. Um, and I do think that sometimes on the left, because the content is so worthy, we think we don't have to care about that. But we do. <laughs> we have to make people want to read our books. It's interesting because this came up at the at the literary festival as well. And my friend Yomi Adagoki has just written a brilliant book called The List, um, which is a novel and it's about what happens when a pair of very known professional influencers reports emerge where that the guy is is a bad guy um and there's a list of sort of abusive men that circulates and it's an amazing book but Yomi is a journalist and said she initially wanted to write a serious piece of journalism about about sexism and about exploitation and about sort of you know where we were in I mean I know we're never going to be post me too but in in the wake of of what happened a few years ago, it took a while in her, you know, she'd sort of written like a nonfiction book before that had been very, very successful, but realising that she was allowed to write something that was fun and entertaining and it could be about something very serious and those serious parts could really, you know, resonate and, you know, be heard and inspire people to action, but that could be part of a, a piece that had, you know, those funny moments and those absurd moments in it as well. Yeah. I, I would love to try that sometimes. <laughs> sometime, <laughs> I mean, this the I, I I've talked about this before, but this book, uh, my most recent book, 
I worked with a writing teacher to find another kind to, um, you know, I guess a more literary voice. You know, it is, a, it's a, it, it, Doppelganger's very much not conventional nonfiction. It's more creative nonfiction and it's a more experimental style. And um, yeah, I worked with this wonderful writing teacher, Harriet Clark, um, who's a novelist and, and uh, taught creative writing at Stanford for, for years. But it did make me think, that it might be fun to try my hand at, you know, actual, at at fiction. So I'm inching towards it. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Oh, that's so exciting. Mm -hmm. And I I love that as well, because I hadn't heard about it. And I think to be a seasoned writer, you know, you have written so many books and they've had, you know, sort of acclaim on every level and to then go back and think, could someone else teach me another way of doing this? I think it's interesting. Maybe... I think that kind of comes back to the ego. I think that it's a really inspiring thing to be, you know, at the at such a high point in your career and say, I think some I think I could learn something. I think I could do this differently and I'm gonna ask someone for help. I'm so glad I did it and I think that it was um I mean, frankly, one of the strange gifts of the pandemic. Um because my life has been so filled with travel uh, since I was in my 20s that taking a course was just impossible. Like I, I, it, I could never have done it. I could never have st- stuck with it because I was always running around too much. And being grounded for a few years, I suddenly realized, well, I could. I could. Because I, it had been in the back of my mind that I had always I'd wanted to do this. Um, because I didn't study, I didn't study creative writing. Um, I studied, I studied literature and I studied philosophy, but I didn't, I, I didn't ever do a creative writing course. Um, and and then I said, and then I realized, well, actually, I'm not going anywhere for me. Probably, I don't have anything on my schedule for the next year because nobody was booking any events and so on. Yeah, I, I was, I was teaching uh, university by Zoom. But I had time in a way that I, I had not had before. And I'm really glad that I did this. I owe it to my friend V, uh, formerly Eve Ensler, who introduced me to Harriet. Yeah, went back to school. I had that f- foolish, that feeling of being a foolish undergrad, which I hadn't had since I took Spanish um, uh, you know, in my, in my 30s because we were living in Argentina to make a film there. Um, there's nothing more humbling than going back to school. And um, it's also good for me as somebody who teaches undergrads to have had that experience. I think it made me a better teacher. Oh, that's interesting. And that makes sense as well, because I think it's really difficult, isn't it, to explain how something is. And obviously, you know, you you do it and do it well. And I'm, you know, very jealous of the, the undergrads who have you as a teacher. But um, I mean, I teach some creative writing and... I've been learning about creative writing as I go and suddenly noticing all of the things that I just have been doing without thinking actually do need some explanation. I think it's a really, um, I don't want to sound like Kanye, I was going to say it's a humbling process, but it, it is to to think about how the enormous skill required to explain something that you do and how different that is from doing it. Exactly, yeah, especially if you didn't, it, it, you know, if, if 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 it came to you more intuitively, as opposed to, um, you know, you 
going to the Iowa Writers Workshop and, you know, having that kind of training. You mentioned reading poets when you were younger. I'd love to hear about the poetry you read. Because my mom was involved in the second wave feminist movement, a lot of the poems I found on her bookshelf were like Arch Piercy, um, Susan Griffin, Maya Angelou. You know, I, I think that those were probably pretty important for me as a teen. Lately, I've been, I, you know, I've been really taken with um, um, Jory Graham's poetry. Uh, her, um, her latest is Towards 2040, I believe is the name. And it's really grappling with this, um, with the climate crisis and technology and mortality. And she writes about caring for her mother on her deathbed mediated by technology like cameras that allow her to be in the room when she can't physically be in the room i think frankly it's too rare for our literary giants to grapple with the weight of our moment in history right now to really try to grapple with extinction and being on the knife edge of a collapse of a habitable planet at the same time as we're doing things with technology that are utterly destabilizing to our sense of self. And, you know, she, like, she does that with poetry. You know, my students, one of, one of the books we read in my climate feelings course, <laughs> it's actually called Ecological Affect, but I always tell them in the first class that that's just a fancy word for saying climate feelings. Um, you know, I call it climate feelings because I, I want to broaden the, um, parameters of what kinds of feelings the natural world evokes in us that it isn't you know we, we've pre- we've prescribed anxiety as one of the emotions we feel in the face of the climate crisis or terror I organized the seminar by emotion <laughs> um, so it gets a little bit messy but one of the emotions is delight <laughs> um, and reread um uh, Ross Gay's The Book of Delights, which is just the most amazing book of poetry, where he created this discipline for himself where every day he would write a, like a, a poem that captured the feeling of delight. Um, and there's one that's just about uh, traveling with a tomato plant. <laughs> it's just the students love and I love so much. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't believe we will do what is necessary in the face of any of the crises we face unless we are very much in touch with feelings of love and um, and cherishing about what needs to be protected. If we're only driven by fear and rage, we will pickle in it um, and turn inwards. But if we are able to really open up portals that connect us to how much we love one another and the natural world. And, you know, when I say one another, I mean, beyond species, Mm. that will be nourished by that. Like those will be the roots that, you know, keep us in this in a good way. Um, So uh, um, Ross Gay is, is, is really important for that. Uh, Yeah, return to return to him often, highly recommend Book of Delights. My students love it so much. I'm so happy that (laughs) you mentioned him because I had a wonderful interview with him and I not thought of that book in so long Mm -hmm. and I really want to go back and revisit it and I think that's so true that we forget I think it's so easy to be so drained Mm -hmm. and burned out by that dread and we need to be 
filled nourished. with something need to be and nourished, nourished by yeah. something and, and he is so nourishing and it's i mean it's it we can't stay in that register all the time but we need to mm. we need access to it mm. yeah yeah they also love you know we read keo mcclear birds art life and i'm going to assign um her most recent memoir which is unearthing um and her, these two books birds art life and unearthing are are stories around loss and care and caring for aging parents and um, and losing parents and losing who you thought was your parent. And it turns out maybe they're not your blood parent, which is what in, in, uh, um, unearthing, you know, that's what it starts with. But it, it becomes this sort of celebration of entanglement and questions around what is kinship and what is family and really expanding that sort of circle of relations in this incredibly beautiful and generative way. Bird's Art Life is really just a celebration of kind of fine attention um, that birding offered her in a moment of grief. Anyway, some of my favorites. Beautiful. They're wonderful, wonderful recommendations. And I don't know those books and I'm going to seek them out because I think that's such a fascinating topic as well. Our attention as a resource and where we place it. Oh my God, yeah. And how how books hold it, I suppose. And how I'm so aware, you know, as a reader as well. And, you know, you mentioned about sort of being a, a teenage reader, reading like trashy books like Sweet Valley High. But I often think, you know, I'd love to be mostly reading the books that nourish me and I suppose this kind of comes back to that things being very worthy and earnest and good and I often think that a a trashy book that's fun and that really is gripping and engaging that can be so much more nourishing than so many of the other things that we spend our attention on. You know or a book like like Demon Copperhead which doesn't need me to celebrate it, but I, it's still, you know, on my mind. But Barbara King Solver's latest, just absolute masterpiece, is, you know, it it shows that anything and anyone you give your true attention to, um, you know, as an artist, that it can elevate anyone in any circumstance, um, and and that vi- the violence is just giving oneself permission to turn away, give no attention, give no care. And, and she's, you know, she, her, her subject matter are the people, the, the group of people in the United States for whom it is, it has been so long socially acceptable to just dismiss as white trash, as rednecks, um, and to just be like, this is the one group that, that, that I don't have to give my attention to, um, you know, even on the on the left, right, where we are grappling with so many uh, forms of othering and dismissal, and these are her people, and she is absolutely bound and determined to say every one of these, you know, they, they, everyone deserves our attention, you know, um, which which doesn't mean that there's no accountability and that everybody is, you know, nobody's a saint in that book, right, but. Um, there are power dynamics and there are people who are predators and there are people who are prey, but everybody's worthy of her attention. And that, you know, that light that she shines is just so, I think such a healing force and just extraordinary. Um, uh, yeah, I love that book so much. Love her so much. It's rich territory for any novelist too, I think, to, you know, look for, the unsung and the unseen. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds of kind of 
you know, who's allowed to write what. And I think as a reader, for sure, I would always rather that someone be writing about their own experience than another writer sort of comes along and says, here's how it is. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to speak for these people because they can't speak. I think that is also a problem that lies much more with publishing than with writers that it's I think the responsibility of publishers to make sure that everyone is getting to tell their stories but also there are so many tiny tiny tales that we might miss and the books I love the most are the ones that take that really really close view and they're not necessarily writing about the big and the grand and dramatic but taking those smaller stories and exploring them um I just um interviewed the writer Katrina Diamond who writes quite sort of intense and I'd say sort of violent visceral thrillers but they've all got a real feminist edge and she started because she read a story in a newspaper about um about domestic violence and she was so horrified and angry about it she kind of she wanted to to rewrite it in a way where a woman could triumph and a woman could see justice and I think writing our own realities isn't helping but maybe in a subtle way it is maybe by bringing that version into the world and having people read that and and draw it in it does start to kind of almost change the spiritual and emotional water level in a way I think it does I think it does it's a piece of it. It's not the whole of it. I mean, we have to believe in it. <laughs> um, yeah, I would. I don't think somebody like King Solver, who does this, just is so committed to the work of humanization, um, mm. would argue that that's the whole job. Um, I think. I think she believes in in political and economic. Uh, uh, responses as well but maybe unless we see each other as humans we're not going to be able to do that work Um, and you know we are in a moment of just such extreme dehumanization of one another Um, uh, you know one book that I've thinking about that I've just ordered is um, Minor Detail by Adanya Shibley, which I hadn't read. Um, but this is, you know, she's a Palestinian um, novelist who was going to be getting uh, this, you know, important prize at the Frankfurt Book Fair, and it was canceled um, because it was seen as too, I don't know, in contentious. <sighs> You know, it, and this is precisely the moment when they, when, when, yeah. when, I mean, I think that was such a shameful decision. And I, you know, signed that letter. There's so many letters floating around. Um, but, you know, signed the letter um, standing with her. But I hadn't read the novel. And, you know, I've, 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 it's making its way to me <laughs> at the moment. I've just ordered it now that I'm back from book tour. Um, but, but yeah, we need to be, we need to be reading those stories of humanization. Um uh, because because they're needed more than ever. Mm, absolutely, I think that is such a, a powerful place to come to a stop. Well, I was going to ask you what you're about to read, and and now I know. And you know, I'm I was just thinking shamefully. I don't I don't know that I ever have read um, any Palestinian writers. And you're so right. Now is the time, absolutely, to to read those stories. It's been such a pleasure having this conversation with you. Um, I can't thank you enough. And 
I feel smarter. I don't think I am smarter, but I feel smarter. And that's what, but I'm definitely, definitely much, much smarter. And maybe more human having read Doppelganger. And I'm sure that a lot of the people listening have already, you know, absorbed it and been gripped by it because it is gripping and it is such a joy to read. There's just, I, I must say that that's such a compliment coming from you. Thank you so much. Huge thanks to Naomi. Doppelganger is published by Penguin and out now. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and created by Dale Shaw and me, Daisy Buchanan. To see all the books Naomi mentioned, go to acast.com slash booked and you can shop a selection on our page at bookshop.org. Find us and follow us on social media at mybooked and if you're feeling especially generous, we would hugely appreciate a five-star review. As well as helping us, you could be helping a new listener to discover the podcast and their new favourite book. Finally, I leave you with this from Zadie Smith. The very reason I write is so that I might not sleepwalk through my entire life. See you next time.